The man stumbled as he hurried to be on time. He was not going to be late for this banquet. It was sure to have lots of food. The host was generous. It was going to be great, except there was a wild card. There was this controversial figure that was the, the guest of honor who was going to be there. And he had said and done things that people hadn't experienced before. He was sought after. He was applauded. He was followed by many, but he was still very controversial. He taught as a rabbi, yet he said disputable things. He touched and he ate and drank with people who were unkosher. It was like he didn't know who was who in the religious world, even though he allegedly knew. And he didn't seem to recognize how the effort that went into ritual purity. This was sure to be an interesting evening. Would it be enjoyable? Would it be, would he be recognized for his, uh, and acknowledged for his piety? Would he be even noticed? Or would he be dismissed or even shamed? Welcome to the story for this morning from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, where Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to a banquet. Let's read Luke 7, 36 through 50. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Up to this point in the book of Luke, the Pharisees were very skeptical of Jesus. And in the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 7, it says that they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So you can see that this story is ripe for some kind of confrontation. And it doesn't disappoint. There's a couple things about a uh, Jewish banquet that would be good to know to understand the story better. First, in verse 36, it says that they were reclining at the table. This isn't a banquet where people sat around a table in chairs. You, the table was lower. You laid with your feet out to be behind you, your left arm under your body, and your right arm free to eat with. 
and you would recline there and eat and, and drink and, and discuss things. So your feet would be furthest from the table. Secondly, it was common for religious people who had banquets like this to open up their homes for uninvited guests to come in, but they had to stay behind the feet uh, a little ways and watch and observe quietly from a distance. So this means that the woman who approached Jesus's feet likely would not even have been noticed until she began weeping or until the perfume that she was pouring would waft through the room. So the scene is set. You have the main players. You have Simon the Pharisee. He's the one that invited Jesus to the banquet. He's the one that hosted it. And he's interested in Jesus in some way. Then you have Jesus who accepted the invitation and the woman who shows up uninvited but is deeply emotional about Jesus. And then you have the other guests. So we've been looking at Jesus's parables over the last month or so. And the parable in this passage is so closely tied to the story around it that we have to talk about the whole story in order to understand the parable. In the parable, it's obvious that there's a contrast between two different people in similar yet different circumstances. They both owe money, but one owes 10 times more than the other. And the question is, if they are told that they don't have to pay back the debt, if they're allowed to go free, which one would be more, would, would love more? And the obvious answer is that the one who owed a lot more would love that they were being going free way more than the one who had less debt. But as simple as this parable seems, its message is so powerful, we, we, it, we need the context of the story to understand uh, it, how it reaches its potential. So Simon the Pharisee, he invites Jesus to this banquet and the invited guests and Jesus and Simon, they're, they're reclining at the table, they're discussing things, they're eating, and everything seems to be going as planned until this woman comes up to Jesus's feet and she's weeping. The text doesn't say why she's weeping, but the context would tell us that it was likely tears of joy that she was able to be this close to Jesus and, and do what she did for him. Her tears are so plentiful that they begin to wet Jesus's feet. And if they haven't already turned because they heard her weeping, Jesus would have felt the tears and, and turned to her and all eyes would look at this woman. And this wasn't just any woman. It says that she was a known sinner in the town, uh, it's that she lived a sinful life. Again, the text doesn't tell us what kind of sinful life she lived, but she was probably a prostitute. Everybody knew that she was sinful and that she was, uh, that that's who she was. And so um, all eyes turn to her as she's crying over Jesus's feet. But instead of leaving out of shame or embarrassment, just trying to get out of there, she is so devoted to, to doing what she came to do in her love and commitment to Jesus that, that she just bends down and she begins wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, given that she came prepared with an alabaster jar to put perfume on his feet, I, I don't know if she was ready to be as emotional as she was, if she recognized that she was going to be that emotional, because she probably would have brought a towel. But she uses what she has. She uses her hair to wipe his feet. And this is, is interesting because a woman letting down her hair in public 
for a married woman was shameful. For an unmarried woman was at least an act of humility as well as emotional. But none of this mattered to her because she was so focused on Jesus and this act of love that she wanted to do for him that she just continued on to do it. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume and she intended to pour this on Jesus' feet. And this may seem really weird to us, but in the time when she was doing this, people walked everywhere. They didn't have cars and they walked where animals also walked. And so you'd only have to use your imagination a little bit to realize that their feet would be pretty messy, smelly, and stinky. They, uh, they walked through animal feces and urine and, and dirt and, and they wore sandals. So this is a very humbling act to be uh, wiping his feet with her hair is also a beautiful act to put perfume on them to, to take away some of the smell and to soothe them and all of that. So it also reminds us of what Jesus did for his disciples on the night that they celebrated the Last Supper together. And then he said that the disciples didn't want him to do it because it was, it was a servant's act. It was very humbling. And he said, to lead, to be great, you have to serve. So she was doing this very humble act. And, this, and, and then she takes the alabaster jar and pours it over his feet. This jar is significant. There's several different explanations of what it might be. Uh, some scholars uh, explain that it was an inheritance, an inheritance that was given to a young girl when she reached marrying, marrying age. And then she would give it to her husband as a sign of her commitment and her devotion to him. It was very valuable. Others say that it was a small jar with a very narrow neck that allowed the, the smell to come out, but in order to pour, you had to break it. So it was a one-time kind of use for pouring. And that a prostitute would wear these tied around their neck uh, for the perfume to be helpful in her, in her trade. What we do know is that it was very valuable and that it was likely everything she had to offer. She brought everything to Jesus. She brought her, her dignity. She humbled herself. She brought this, this uh, valuable alabaster jar of perfume, and she's weeping at Jesus' feet, and she's kissing her, his feet as she wiped him with her hair, and then she's pouring perfume on, perfume on them. And the guests around the table are staring at, disbelief, in, at her in disbelief, and Jesus sees right through Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, he's judging Jesus. Uh, in his mind, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who this woman was and that she was a sinner and that she shouldn't be touching him because that would take away his ritual purity. And so he's looking at Jesus and Jesus isn't doing anything. Jesus is not moving away to stop her. He's, he's letting her do this. And so in Simon's mind, either he doesn't know who this woman is and therefore she's not a prophet, or he does know, but he's not acting like a prophet should. But Jesus looks at him. He looks at Simon and he calls him by name. And then he tells him the parable about the two people who owe money and one owns, owns, owes 10 times more than the other. And he asks Simon who would love him more. The one who is, which one, who both are forgiven, which one would love him more? 
Well, I think Simon's beginning to realize he's being set up, but of course he has to answer. And he, he tells him, and Jesus goes on to make his point. He turns to the woman, and he asks Simon to look at her too. Up to this point, Simon hasn't seen her. He, he <coughs> hasn't seen this woman as a person. He's only seen her as something to avoid. Three times in this passage, the woman is referred to as a sinner. And Jesus points out three ways that she has welcomed and blessed and honored Jesus that Simon hasn't. She's washed his feet. She's kissed his feet and poured perfume on his feet. There were formalities that uh, someone who threw a banquet, Jewish banquet like this, would, would, would make sure they did. They were kind of custom and, and, and proper. And, and Simon made sure he did these, including proper preparation of the foods, invitations, <coughs> receiving guests and seating them according to their age and their importance, the proper prayers at the proper time, hors d'oeuvres and sweets and wines. All these things had to be done in, in the proper way, and, and Simon did what was required. He did these things. But water for his feet when he entered, a kiss of welcome, and oil anointing with oil, these weren't required, but they would have been welcome. They would have been hospitable. They would have been uh, honorable. This unnamed woman, this publicly recognized sinner, the one who was not invited and, and not even noticed except with judgment. She did all three of these things out of deep reverence and gratefulness. She was extravagant in her hospitality and generosity. The contrast between these two people, Simon the Pharisee on the one hand and the unnamed woman, the sinner on the other, uh, it's clear that there's a huge contrast. He's named. She's not. He's a Pharisee. She's a sinner. He did the inviting. She's not even invited. He worked hard to do everything right. She understood her sinful life. He's upper class. She's lower class. However, in the kingdom of God, if you've been with us, been watching or, or been part of our services in the last several weeks, you'll know Remember that we've been calling the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom because its values, its actions, its practices are so completely different than the values and practices and actions of the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of God, the unnamed woman, the one who recognizes her many sins, the one who's uninvited, the lowest class, she is the one who's acknowledged and blessed. Jesus affirms that her sins have been forgiven. In both verses 47 and 48, she, he affirms that her sins are forgiven. In verse 47, the NIV kind of makes it clear that she was forgiven, and out of that forgiveness, she had deep love. She recognized the depth of her sinfulness, that she was in debt and could never get out without help, and that Jesus had brought her out. And so she had so much love for the one who forgave her. And then in verse 50, Jesus explains further that it was her faith that saved her. 
verse 37 that she says that she had known about Jesus previously, and likely she would have had an encounter when he, when he, with him at some point. But somehow she recognized that Jesus was who he was in a way that Simon did not. She understood that Jesus was someone to be trusted, that she could put her complete faith and hope in him. Jesus affirms that it was her faith that saved her, and he tells her to go in to peace. That, that word for in could be in or into, and given the, the circumstances, it would seem that into would be better, that she's going into a new way of life. Jesus says you go into peace. So, what does this story say to us? It's an interesting story, but like all Jesus' parables, this parable and the story around it carry profound implications about life in the kingdom of God. So I'm going to give you five ways that this uh, parable applies to us. First of all, who we put our faith in is the difference between life and death. Up to this point, Simon was putting his faith in himself. He was interested in Jesus, but he was testing Jesus. He was judging Jesus. He was engaging with him, but he was judging him. The woman, on the other hand, she put her complete trust in Jesus. She recognized that he was the Messiah, the king of this new kingdom, and she chose to trust her with her full love and reverence and devotion. Simon was rebuked. The woman was saved. Her love didn't earn her salvation. Her salvation, her forgiveness, gave her the inspiration for, the capacity for, the desire for this deep love and, and, and devotion to Jesus. So who we put our faith in is the difference between life and death. Secondly, recognition of sinfulness is so much more important than our society admits. We like to think we're okay. We like to think we're doing well. We like to think we're doing a good job. We say that love covers older, over a multitude of sins as if the sins are not a big deal. We ignore sin. We hide sin. We minimize sin. We justify sin and we deceive ourselves about what sin is and what sin is not. Simon was a Pharisee. Pharisees were committed to obeying the letter of the law. Jesus looked right through their rituals, through their upright morality, and he pointed out that behind all this was sin. I think Simon was inviting Jesus to the banquet in order to be recognized and approved of the good job that he was doing, of what a great person he was. And I think people today come to Jesus the same way. We come to him for approval of who I am and how, how I feel and, and what a great person I, I am. Jesus didn't just dismiss Simon. He loved him. But, and he cared about him, but Simon was trying to earn his salvation, earn his way into the kingdom of God by being good enough. And maybe, maybe God could save the rest, the little bit that he couldn't quite reach. Jesus calls out sin. Jesus will not stand for sin in his kingdom, and the only way to be free of sin is through faith in him. The difference with the woman was that she recognized her sin. She admitted her sin. She didn't try to hide it. 
or deny it. She wasn't deceived by it. She held it out to Jesus. She said, this is who I am. Please save me. She knew she couldn't be good enough. And she came to Jesus to be forgiven. She recognized the magnitude of her forgiveness. She didn't think, oh, you know, I'm this good. I only need this much salvation. She recognized I'm at the bottom. I need it all. Whereas Simon was like, I'm this good and I just need a little bit. That leads to number three. God's grace and forgiveness will lead to a response. We talked about this more last week with the parable of the unforgiving servant. Truly forgiven people will recognize the magnitude of their sin. That they aren't this good and just need a little bit, but they are, they're lost in their sin. When we truly recognize that, we'll recognize the magnitude of forgiveness that Jesus offers. Simon thought he was the debtor that owed less. But the parable was meant to say it doesn't matter whether you owe this much, this much, or this much, uh, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times as much as somebody else. What you owe God is infinitely more than that. Your sin before God is so great that you're still a debtor, no matter how much better you might be than somebody else. And you cannot pay your way out of debt. It's not like I can get this far, just, just, just pay me this. You're in debt. You need a Savior. Simon was deceiving himself about his sin. He thought he could be good enough and that he didn't have much sin. Jesus was exposing that he was much more sinful than he thought. Number four, there's no hierarchy amongst God's people in his kingdom. We're all sinners. We're all debtors before God. We are all in desperate need of forgiveness. Whether I might be as slightly better than you are, you might be slightly better than me, we're all so far in need of Jesus. We're lost without him. And then when we receive forgiveness, it doesn't make us better. It makes us forgiven and able to hold out that forgiveness as an invitation for others so that others can come in and be forgiven as well. Fifth, Simon was asked to actually look and see the woman. He didn't see her as a person before. He, didn't, he saw her as something to be avoided. How many of us see people that we don't notice? How many of us, how many persons do we see as, as inconveniences? Someone to be avoided, or maybe someone to use to get what we want. Jesus challenges Simon and us to actually look at the person in front of us, to look and see a person that he desperately, desperately loves. To see them as they actually are, that they have needs. And then to allow God's love to flow in and through us so that we can love that person like he does. One commentator ended the discussion of this story with this line. He said, the Louvre, that's the famous art museum in Paris, France. He said, the Louvre's outstanding portrait may be the famous Mona Lisa, but in the Bible, there is no more beautiful portrait of humble, loving faith than this woman's silent but vibrant testimony. This morning, we were going to have communion. And so I wanted to share this story in preparation for communion. And, and, and maybe you can celebrate communion at home with your family. Uh, but listen to this story that kind of reverses the situations of the two debtors in a meaningful way. 
there was a large, prosperous downtown church that had started three mission churches in the slums of the city. And at New Year's, uh, the, on New Year's Day, they would come together for communion at the prosperous church. Everybody was invited to celebrate communion together. And so there were some outstanding stories of people who had been rescued, who had been saved, who had come to know Jesus, thieves, burglars, so on. They all knelt side by side at the communion rail. <clears throat> well, on one of these New Year's services at the communion table, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court. The judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, the burglar had been converted and become a Christian worker. Yet as they knelt there, the judge and the con former convict neither seemed to be aware of the other right next to each other. Well, after the service, the judge was walking home with the pastor. And he said to the pastor, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor said, yes, I noticed, but I didn't know that you did. And the two walked along a little longer, a little silently. And then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. And then the judge said, who, do you, who are you talking about? And the pastor said, why, the conversion of the convict. And the judge said, I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The pastor, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. And the judge said, yes. It didn't cost the burglar much to get to converted and to come out of jail, or as he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And he, when he saw Jesus as his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, that I was to go to church, that I was to take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, I took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually I became a judge. Pastor, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on a level with that burglar. It took much more grace to forgive me for all my pride and self-deception, to get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than the conflict, the convict that I had sent to prison. All of us, no matter whether you are the most violent convicted criminal or the most noble, kind-hearted, kind compassionate humanitarian, we are all lost in our sin without the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. But because of his greater than we can imagine love for us, Jesus, he paid the price. He died in our place. He took our sin upon himself, buried it in the grave, and he conquered death and our sin, and he rose again, and he ascended to heaven as king of this new kingdom. And he offers anyone who is willing to admit the depth of their sinfulness, that we are desperately lost and sinful and in need of rescue. He offers us forgiveness and life in his kingdom. If you've not truly acknowledged the depth of your sinfulness, that you are 
totally lost. You can't be good enough and let Jesus do the rest. It doesn't work that way. You are lost. If you are ready to admit that, if you haven't done that, and confessed to Jesus and accepted his forgiveness, you're invited to do that this morning, to admit that you're lost without him and ask him to forgive you and receive that forgiveness and be part of this kingdom of God. If you have asked for forgiveness, if you have recognized that and accepted that, I want you to ponder, ponder this story and, and then ask the Holy Spirit, what's the response that he's calling you to? Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. It continues to be the word of God. It continues to speak truth. It's alive and it's working. And Lord, whenever we open it, you're doing something in our heart. Thank you for this story that we discussed and, and talked about and that you spoke to us through this morning. Please just bless us wherever we are in our homes. Um, Father, continue to speak to us and help us to know what it is that you want us to do because of this story that you spoke to us uh, through this morning. Thank you that you love us. Please just bless us on our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.